You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host this week. I'm David Grubbs, an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. With me this week is Nathan Gilmore, associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you, sir? I am doing pretty well. It's almost the weekend and almost our fall break. Dude, almost your fall break? Like, yep, I'm surprised. Next week- we get a Thursday and Friday off. I'm surprised you're not at Christmas yet. That's next week. Okay. Well, also with me is Michael Farmer, Assistant Professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How goes it with you? Good, David. Excellent. Well, before we turn to the topic of this week, uh, is there anything on the mighty and expansive Christian Humanist Network that we want to draw attention to? Yeah, I actually wrote it down this week. Sectarian Review <laughs> did an episode on the John Birch Society, so another Dude. of their uh, conspiratorial episodes. Uh, Michael, I believe the Christian Feminist Podcast, whose episode I didn't write down, will also have one by the time this airs. Yeah, I believe it's on biographies of Christian women. Yes, it is. See, listeners, I do remember things after people remind me. And I saw an episode dropped from the Book of Nature, am I right? I think it was. Uh, let me look I think it's at it. It's on that. Arrival. Yeah, Arrival, um, a movie which my wife liked, and I haven't gotten around to yet, but I'm gonna listen. So, dear listeners, uh, cast your net far and wide across uh, our network's offerings. Uh, m- good stuff out there, and more to come. And when you get bored with the new stuff, we'll delve back into the old stuff. And David, can I make one announcement off network? Absolutely. Uh, The podcast, um, Pass the Mic, which is uh, one of the podcasts of The Witness, the same uh, collective that does Truth's Table, uh, recently sustained a cyber attack on their iTunes account, and so they had to reset their whole project. Uh, So if you've never listened to Pass the Mic, just go ahead and subscribe right now. You can thank me later. If you were subscribed before, uh, you'll need to cancel your subscription and then resubscribe on iTunes or Overcast or Podcast Addict or whatever else uh, so that you can get their new episodes. Uh, That's something that I've, you know, having been the uh, tech guy uh, when we had some technical problems, I always try to help out other podcasts when things like that go sideways. Yeah, and so often they do. Well, dear listeners, our topic for this week is a term that I've made up. Uh, I'm calling it the composition canon, and I use that term to refer to texts, especially short stories, that are often used in first-year composition courses. And it seems that those of us who teach freshman writing often teach the same stuff. What we're looking at particularly two from that category, Updike's A&P and Faulkner's A Rose for Emily. But before we delve into that, Nathan and, my, and Michael, can we make a quick list of some others that you, you would put in this category? Yeah, you want to just go kind of one at a time and we'll check them off as we say them? Sounds yeah, good. let's do that. All right, uh, Gilman's Yellow Wallpaper. Yep. Uh, uh, Araby, James Joyce. Poe's Telltale Heart. Also Poe, Cask of Amontillado. Yep. Good Man is Hard to Find, Flannery O'Connor. Good Country People, Flannery O'Connor. Nathaniel Hawthorne, Young Goodman Brown. Bartleby the Scrivener, Herman Melville. 
Guy de Maupassant's The Jewelry I've seen in more than one place, though that always seemed like an odd choice to me. I love that story. It's Henry great. David Thoreau, Civil Disobedience. We've run out of the ones that I know. Um, so I always, I also teach a story by Kay Boyle called The Astronomer's Wife that I think works pretty well, but I don't know that that's canon. Sarah Orne Jewett's The White Heron. Y'all have done that one? Oh, I hate Jewett. <laughs> I like The White Heron, though. Martin Luther King Jr., Letter from a Birmingham Jail. Yep, yep. So at this point, we're talking Freshman Comp 1 and Freshman Comp 2, as it were, huh? We're doing the nonfiction ones as well. Sherman Alexie's On Learning to Read, I think, is pretty often uh, assigned in Freshman Comp. Uh, Jonathan Swift, A Modest Proposal. I wish I could remember off the top of my head the, the author of this uh, this one, but I've seen it in a couple of different places. A really good article from actually I think about 20 years ago called black men in public space yes uh i i know his name is brett something that's right we're uh, closer that's a yeah. great article it's a great article we should do it sometime if we haven't already all right george orwell shooting an elephant i mean we can talk about poetry and talk about robert frost the road not taken Oh, Politics of English Language. Also, Orwell. So that's a pretty good list. I mean, any other titles, guys, that we want to throw on the pile here? Heap in some sonnets, and I think we can uh, we can pretty much extrapolate any of the other editions that you would toss in here on, on, on that basis. James Joyce's The Dead, also. I forgot about The Dead. Oh, gosh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and we've forgotten um, greats like uh, like The Mask um, and uh, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. Um, yeah, so that sort of thing is what we're talking about. Well, Michael, we need to settle into that question of canon. I've used the term already. Um, and we seem to have a vague idea, or at least not a vague idea, some very specific ideas about what fits in this. So what is a canon? What purpose does it serve? What kind of conditions give rise to a canon generally? And then let's apply it to the composition canon. I am reasonably certain that we have an episode on the canon. Is that true? It must have been six or seven years ago if we do. Yes, it was like an eternity ago. Yeah, I mean, who knows Who knows what stupid thing I said then. <laughs> canon begins as a religious term. It refers to a list of approved text approved by the church hierarchy in that case. It kind of migrated to, uh, to the world of teaching literature centuries later, uh, in the 20th century, I suspect. And it just refers to the, the list of books that are considered essential for any educated person to read and in that sense it it's the list of books that is commonly taught in college classrooms uh, so in large part this is going to be determined by uh, by what's in the anthologies I don't know about you guys but I teach straight from an anthology I don't even make a whole lot of decisions about what to teach I just assign sections of the anthology that have to do with various uh, elements of literature and uh, have them read the stories that go along with them. So I am completely at the mercy of Robert Diani, whoever that is, uh, because that's the book I use. So I, I suspect when we're talking about canons, for the most part, and I'm sure there are exceptions, but for the most part, what we're talking about is what the people who decide to put things in anthologies decide to put things in the anthologies. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. And I, uh, I should have looked this up before we started recording, but I, I forgot to... I know that uh, Harold Bloom has a book called The Western Canon. Did he uh, inherit or did he invent that title? I, I don't know. It seems to me that it would go back further than that. For some reason, I'm thinking Matthew Arnold, although I can't think of a place where Matthew Arnold actually uses the word canon. So who knows? 
It, it's also worth pointing out that the canon became a really live issue in the 1980s and 90s uh, when it, you know, this is where you got the idea that the canon is white men, which it mostly is. Uh, and so you had an attempt to widen the canon by adding people like Emily Dickinson or Ralph Ellison, uh, or also just get rid of the canon altogether, use multiple canons. There's a book called Canons and Contexts by Paul Lauder that I think makes that case uh, pretty well. And, and I, I haven't really been paying attention, but I suspect the canon is once again a live issue, given the dominance of cultural studies in, uh, in English teaching. Cool. And just a real quick correction on something that uh, I said earlier. Uh, I said the mask. I meant we wear the mask, Paul Lawrence Dunbar. And the, the other line that I dropped is from another one of his poems. Um, which then my Angelou picked up and adopted for an autobiography. So let's turn to our first example, uh, Updike's A and P. Nathan, what kind of story is this, and what do you think accounts for its inclusion in this thing we're calling the composition canon? Well, it's interesting. This this text is one that I read as an undergrad, and I really haven't revisited since. So I'm kind of reading it again for the first time. And I can definitely see where uh, this would be a text that'd be useful for a composition uh, class. I mean, this is a brief story. Uh, it doesn't take long to read. You can really cover what it's got to offer in one class setting. Uh, it's definitely got some ambiguity. So you could teach, uh, you know, the art of, uh, you know, composing and presenting uh, claim statements or thesis statements, whatever you call those critters. Uh, you've got the ambiguity of, you know, why the narrator quits at the end of the story. Spoiler alert, sorry. Uh, you know, what it is that, you know, makes the narrator uneasy, a psychological ambiguity. Uh, you've got questions of sexuality. You've got uh, questions of surveillance. Uh, you've got questions of, you know, uh, class, to be sure. Uh, and so, I mean, you know, you've got a lot of... Uh, good areas, if you will, or good occasions, I guess I should say, uh, to form claim statements, to offer evidence from the story, to arrange them logically. I mean, this is a, a pretty natural story to write about in a freshman composition class. So, you know, if those are, you know, some of the criteria for making a text a good composition class item, this story's definitely got it. I mean, Michael, uh, I, I imagine since it's Updike, You've read it more recently than I have. I mean, let's let's stick with the composition context. What else about this text makes it good for that? Well, um, Diani has it quite rightly, I think, at the very beginning of the book, before you go over any of the elements that he talks about, point of view, character, setting, language, style, uh, irony, symbol, stuff like that. And I, I, think, I think that works really well because there are interesting things to say about this story in all of those things. So when you teach the later stories, you can refer back to it as a way of um, contrasting with the, with the current stories. The other thing I'd point out is it's a really good introduction to a term that is very, very important for teaching short stories, which is epiphany. There's a very clear epiphany at the end of that story, uh, actually even clearer than the one in Araby, which is the story that the, the, the term is often attached to. So because so many short stories end with an epiphany, it's good to start the class with a story that has one that's really obvious and that the students can, uh, can um, grasp. The other thing I would say is this is a story about somebody their age, narrated by somebody their age. So I, I think that's part of the motivation behind putting it there. In theory, at least, they, uh, they identify with Sammy, although most of my students don't seem to. And, and the story is... 56 years old at this point. So I, I don't know how much that still holds the youth culture. And when the story was published is not the same as the youth culture today, obviously. I like your point about being able to use it as a touchstone later on, um, something that can eng uh, engage them at the beginning, but then use it as a, as a continual illustration. Um, I mean, you know, it also makes them angry. I would say, especially the women in the class, the vast majority of them are really upset by the story, and that makes for good dis discussion. Sure enough. Um, I've also seen this one um, pitched. Uh, you've got, you, 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 you brought up Epiphany, 
um, also hanging words like uh, the the buildings Roman uh, on it as well. Um, it's not maybe precisely a coming of age story, but it definitely is a uh, a young person in some sense stepping out and taking responsibility uh, uh, for for words and actions as opposed to simply going with the flow. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And and well, and, and his reasons for doing so are f- so fundamentally ambiguous that you can talk a lot about in what sense has he even grown up? I mean, is this a sexual awakening? Is it a class awakening? Is it, you know, is he just tired of working at this dingy grocery store? Right. So speaking of those ambiguities, um, we do have an update scholar present. Uh, so I would like to consider that particular angle as well. Um, these stories often function as introductions, not just to literature generally, but also to particular authors. I know I've used them that way. So, Michael, what of A&P might prepare students for a future engagement, engagement with Updike? And is Updike an author that you really want to introduce to freshmen? Well, I, I will say I do not teach very much Updike uh, because I teach a Christian college and some of the material, most of the material, especially most of the novels, is uh, is quite explicit. So uh, I teach this story in freshman comp. I teach separating in my short story class and I teach sometimes teach the centaur in, uh, in a class. But I, I mostly don't teach Updike just because I don't want to deal with the uh, the fallout from teaching Updike. Uh, this story has something in common with Rose for Emily, which is it's not terribly typical of the work of the person in question. I mean, this story, because it's spoken in this very distinctive first person narration um, that uses a lot of slang and, and is clearly a uneducated person, although a thoughtful person, um, it, it really Updike's narration isn't like that generally. And so um, this is one of the very few stories that that has the feel that it has. In fact, I would say this story owes much more to J.D. Salinger's work than most of Updike's fiction does, although many, not many, but several of his early stories, I guess, owe quite a bit to Salinger. It does fixate on some of the things that Updike is fixated on, uh, most notably sex. I, I, I mean, I, I think you, you see the uh, authorial libido here as well as you see it in any of his other short stories. Uh, and, of course, there's the language. Sammy is uneducated, as I said, but because he is voiced by Updike, he still has this, uh, you know, really incredible way to make metaphors and to describe the world. And so the, the story is very vivid in the way that Updike's work is almost always vivid. But ultimately, I'm not sure it's a great introduction to Updike. I read the story my freshman year of college, and I was well into Updike's catalog before I realized that I had read it because it's so different from most of his other material. And what, I mean, once you know, once you've read the other stuff and you, you, you read A&P, you can see the connections, but I would not say the story is typical of his work at all. I just think it's an interesting question to bring up though. I mean, to what degree is a student's interest in an author and engaging that author again, um, whether or not they're happy to do so, and then what expectations they bring on it are shaped by these first pieces that we choose uh, to present to them. Yeah, isn't th- that, that is an interesting question. And I mean, it's worth noting that no student has ever come up to me afterwards and said, hey, where can I read more of this? Most of them are really frustrated or annoyed with the story, mostly because I think they're frustrated and annoyed with Sammy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, I don't yeah. think they're evaluating the story qua story. I think they, they don't like the narrator. And because it's a first-person narration, it's difficult for them to see around that, especially as freshmen. I mean, that is, though, a measure of whether and how well the story is working that they get so immersed in it. Yes, and, and it's kind of a measure of how good a teacher I am or how not good a teacher I am that it, it's very difficult for me to get them to peel back their feelings about the narrator and look at the story, whether the story critiques him, which I think, of course, it does in, in certain important ways. 
how much how much Updike is just adopting this viewpoint versus how much it represents some version of himself. I mean, th- these are all questions that are worth asking. Unfortunately, I don't think they're really the right questions for to, to pose to uh, freshman comp students on the second day of class, which is what I try to do. So, I mean, maybe I, I said it makes sense where it is in, in Diani, but maybe it belongs uh, much later than it is. And that's interesting. Or not in there at all. It brings to my mind uh, Lionel Trilling's essay on the teaching of modern literature, because uh, the kind of critical distance you're talking about is precisely what Trilling says modern literature shouldn't allow. And he says that, you know, that's one of the great uh, terrors of the modern literature syllabus is that, you know, uh, students stare into the abyss and the abyss says, aren't I interesting? Right. And, and, and that's absolutely true. And so I, once again, I wonder if maybe we shouldn't be t- uh, teaching them anything we particularly care about. Um, I, I read this book a couple weeks ago. Um, it's by this French author, Danielle Pinnock. And I think in English it's called Reads Like a Novel. Uh, and and he, he talks about young people not reading and not enjoying reading. And he suggests, well, they all did when you read to them when they were children. So why not go into your class, sit down on the first day, pull out a book and read out loud. Don't ask them if they understand it. Just read uh, until you finish the book. And I, I've been I've been thinking about that ever since because, you know, I generally have trouble getting my freshman comp students to be particularly interested in the things we're reading. And I wonder if maybe that would be a, a better way in, just to go in, uh, read A&P out loud or whatever, read, read whatever out loud, and don't ask them any questions. Just let them uh, kind of bang up against it. I don't know. Yeah, I like that. I, I feel, though, it would, might be difficult to justify when one you know starts treating their class as a as a means to deploy assessments and accomplish objectives yeah that's good. when the when the outcomes roll around <laughs> when the bean counters come for their beans right i mean you know the beans got to be counted it's inevitable do, do they <laughs> <laughs> well nathan i pitch faulkner's a rose for emily at my students in my classes and I don't know, some people might consider that cruel, but it isn't unusual. So why... My students actually love that one, David. Really? Awesome. So why do so many first-year comp instructors inflict this sordid tale or others like it on hapless teenagers? Well, first of all, gross always works. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, the, this is definitely a story you know, that has that grand and you know, nauseating... Uh, ending, uh, you know, in my context, you know, a lot, I know a lot of people deploy it because it is a, a story of the passing of the old South and, you know, of the vacuum that opens up and whatever the heck fills it, uh, you know, dead body in this case. Um, you know, it is certainly, I, 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 it's certainly possible to read it. And I'd say probably, uh, you know, it's, very doable to teach this as a kind of cultural allegory. Uh, you know, the decaying old woman and the sense of privilege that she asserts and, you know, the, just all of the death and the decay and so on and so forth. And then, I mean, just on a, a strictly entertainment level, I mean, that hook ending, uh, that, you know, students can make fun of each other for not seeing it coming. So, I mean, there's always an entertainment value to that. Uh, so, you know, I mean, as far as that goes, uh, that I think would be the appeal for students. I mean, on a pedagogical level, you do have the, uh, the narrative we in this story that you can always examine. Uh, you've got, again, you know, uh, lots of symbolic notions rising up. So, uh, you know, the, the, again, it's a brief text. You can cover it in one class period. There's lots there to dig into. And again, when it comes to forming claims, presenting evidence, things like this. This story has lots of hooks that lend themselves well to that. Uh, David, why do you assign this critter? I like to talk about, uh, I like to talk about the Gothic as, as an element in literature. And I, um, I read this one in a, in a row with, uh, 
Cask of Amontillado and uh, the yellow wallpaper. So uh, the the notions of uh, being uh, bo bodies being encased by our being um, in enclosed by architecture, uh, the notion of of past sins coming back to haunt, um, all those kinds of things, I, I think are I think are fascinating, and I'm and I'm interested in um, in in their literary forms uh, in the Gothic. So that that's one of the reasons why I do it. But also, you know, as you say, the grossness. <laughs> um, you know that it, it's it's always a hook. I I can always count on my students to be. Uh, I I always know who has read. Right, um, because all I have to ask at the beginning of class, um, what's on the pillow. And the ones who have read. They, you know, they shudder deliciously, and the ones who have not just look baffled. And and they say, "A rose." <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. That's the other question. Where's the rose? <laughs> I I, uh, I will say that I can. This is one of the few stories I teach where I can reliably come in at the before the class begins and find them chattering about it because they're they're all so disgusted and intrigued by it. Yeah. Yeah, and there's uh, I I think maybe it, it it's it's kind of like the AMP thing maybe um, when you when you say uh, one of one of its uses is that it so readily engages them so that they're they have actually a, a difficult time sometimes talking about it as a story and what it's doing as a story. Um, same thing sometimes when when we're discussing Rose for Emily, they want to they want to know why did people do this and why didn't people do that, um, as if it was history, as if we had any access to these events other than the form of the story, um, and those are those are I think good things. I think that's the way a story needs to hook you before you can go back and and make any of the critical moves. If you've never felt a story that way. Um, all your critical moves are, are are empty gestures. You've never felt the magic. That reminds me, David. I I know somebody, and it might be somebody to whom I'm married. Uh, we watch a lot of the uh, superhero series on Netflix, and uh, yeah. she will at least once an episode say, "Well, why didn't they just check the radar? Why didn't they do this?" And I. <laughs> I always have to say, Mary, I'm watching this for the first time. I don't know. I... <laughs> it's in the script. <laughs> David, uh, when you taught at Central in Kansas, did, did your students have trouble understanding A Rose for Emily in, in terms of all the Southern stuff? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, I don't think they felt it in, in quite the way that uh, in quite the way that I did, though they did they did recognize the notion of small towns, especially rural towns, because we were in a small rural town, and many of them uh, had grown up in smaller, more rural towns. So when we talked about the perspective of the narrator as this kind of communal gossipy we, um, they got that. Uh, they also recognized the um, the. The roles of the role of race um, in the in the in the text um, that's that's something that they were attuned to, but the notion of of kind of the old uh, pseudo aristocratic families um, like th those the, that element was one that uh, often needed a little more a little more explaining a little more unpacking. Um, so many of the stories in the Diani are by Southern authors. So there's that. There's a Eudora Welty's A Worn Path. I teach three Flannery O'Connor stories, which I'll never do again. Um, <laughs> I, they just, they don't get them. Uh, and I, I just feel like I have to spend 15 minutes each class period explaining the differences between Minnesota and the Southeast for them to understand what's going on at all. Is there a Great Plains or Midwestern or Frozen North canon that we can tap into to replace our our Faulkner and our O'Connor? I mean, there's there's F. Scott Fitzgerald and K. Boyle's The Astronomer's Wife is set in Minnesota, and I'm sure there's others. I know that some people 
teach this novel Peace Like a River, but I've never read it. And so, then uh, uh, the the one we did the episode on, and I'm blanking on the author, Neighbor Rosicki. Oh, yeah, Willa Cather. That's Nebraska, but it is at least the Midwest. So, I mean, there's stuff, but, I mean, again, I, I, I don't have to stick to what's in the textbook, but I do. And so, I mean, maybe this is just another another point about how these canons are made and maybe who they have in mind. I, I know absolutely nothing about Robert Duyani or what his interests are. Right. Well, well th that makes it a different kind of canon than, you know, the capital W Western canon, right? Because, I mean, this is, as you said before, Michael, I mean, entirely the prerogative of the anthology editor, right? Uh, and, I mean, there's a hundred different anthologies out there. I mean, as we've noted, I mean, a lot of them put the same stuff in there. Uh, but you could definitely imagine, and, in fact, some presses will let you print custom anthologies. So... It, it strikes me at the very least as a different kind of a critter. Right. Yeah. I wonder I'm going to be honest. I'm not going to do that. I don't have, I don't have the time to devote to reorganizing a freshman class like that. Yeah. I, the point that I was just about to make, Michael, wasn't that one, but it's really connected to that. Um, I mean, you mentioned the time of going kind of going off the grid and creating your own set. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I when I'm putting together uh, readings, especially for uh, a first-year composition class, I'm so often thinking of what's going to be familiar to me that I don't have to spend a lot of time prepping because I know that so much of my energy in this class is already going to be poured into critique response for the writing. Well, and also not killing yourself after the class period where they're visibly disinterested in what you have to say. Right, right. So, you know, I, one of the reasons why I stick to the same old readings is because I know them. And, you know, maybe that's not a good reason, but, um, you know, my, my, my energy is also a resource in reading and and engaging and having things to say about a brand new text um every year every semester um when i'm faced with that choice i usually choose no because i have other classes that require are already requiring me to do that and i usually yeah. won't rethink my choices over the years i'll usually just stick to the same things see that's interesting because I, I think you guys just have more of that benedictine stability to you than i do <laughs> I, 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 get, I get restless, man. I got to teach new stuff. Uh, I'm always looking for new things that I can put in front of classes. Well, I do in most of my other classes, but um, this one and, and my short story class, I make very few changes just partly because of the volume of things you have to read and, and partly because I know that in those classes, I am dealing largely with young students who have to be made to care even before they're made to interpret right i i don't, I don't know about i don't know about y'all but i find the um helping helping them make the move what you call you know making them care michael um i find that move uh easier when it's a text that i'm familiar with that i can just sort of rattle off um practically verbatim without looking at the page um and so that I can, you know, so that I'm, I'm focusing less on did I get the detail of the text right and more on how can I help them uh, if they aren't immediate, immediately engaging with it emotionally as they might with A&P, um, what can I do to maybe help them approach that spot or at least see why someone else might get that kind of enjoyment from it. Um, and I have a harder time doing that when, when it's fresh to me. Yeah, where um, whereas a three hundred or four hundred level class, I, I would much prefer to teach a different iteration of it every year, just because. Uh, well, I I can I trust the students a little bit more to pick up the slack. Right. Well, Michael, before we turn to Nathan's um, typically iconoclastic approach, which he I think is uh, has teased for us. I want to toss around 
this question. Are, are there any composition canid standards that would need to be retired from duty? And maybe we've, we've actually kind of approached that question. Um, can a story cease to be useful for the functions that this canon serves? Yeah, I, and I just said that I, I'm teaching these three Flannery O'Connor stories. There's actually a unit in Diani on O'Connor, and there's another one on Poe, I think. And I, I always think O'Connor will be perfect because her stories all have this very pat structure. They all they all have really the same format and the same message, if you want to think about messages. So I think, well, I'll you know we'll give them the first one, and after that, they'll be able to pick it up. And they just can't, and they don't care, and they don't understand it. They don't get the jokes. They don't understand why the stories are interesting. And so I don't know what I'm going to switch to next year, but I'm not going to do the three O'Connor stories. So part of that, I think, is is reading the audience. Maybe if I were in Georgia, they would have a more immediate understanding of what those stories are doing, or maybe they are, should just be held off until a fresh, or a sophomore short story class. Yeah, I, yeah. So the some some of these, the older they get, the more. Um, the the more background work I f I find myself having to do just to get students um, to the point of of textual understanding, and and I'm I'm pretty much there with Poe. As much as I love Poe, um, the past the past past few years when I've when I've been teaching Casca Volantiato, um, what I've been hearing from most of my students is they just don't understand the language. And uh, it's 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 really hard to get that class off the ground when you've got a basic sentence by sentence level uh, failure to comprehend. And you know, I, I I can't in one class somehow offset all of the different ways that their education has not prepared them to read, you know, an American author from the first half of the, half of the 19th century. Um, and instead maybe another text would be would be what i would need to choose it's frustrating and you never know whether it's your fault or just changing standards or whether it's the student's fault i i i do not like teaching the second section of freshman comp i like i like doing what we call 131 but i don't really like teaching 132 which is write, writing in lit we call it because they, they all just seem so disinterested. And the ones who would be interested typically come in with PSEO credit from high school. So they skip that class. And, uh. and I, I sometimes feel like I'm just uh, doing backflips trying to get them to, to care. And, and that's very hard for me. But 131. Yeah, Mike, Michael's quite tall. So backflips yeah, right. get harder and, and harder by the year. And overweight. Um, 131 is different because they come in they don't want to take the class i tell them hey look i know you don't want to take the class i don't really like teaching it either but maybe we'll have some fun together and two weeks into the semester they're enjoying themselves do you know what i mean and they're they're excited to learn stuff i just i don't know how to do that with 132 it's a it's a real frustration for me because you would think it would be a good recruiting class to find english majors and i've found a few that way um but mostly i find it kind of demoralizing I mean, I, I I try to invest a lot into into that second because our, our our sequence is apparently uh, is is pretty similar to what you're talking talking about, Michael, um, where the second one is is basically an introduction to literature with a writing component. Um, I, I I find myself feeling like I really really need to invest a lot into that because. Um, exactly for the reason that you say because of internal recruitment trying to get majors or at least minors or at least someone who would consider you know taking an upper level as an elective because something piqued your interest um you know that that's one of the one of the classes where i try to have a big personality um and you know some sometimes with some text that works with some not um you know, even though they have the difficulties with Poe's language, uh, the yellow wallpaper just gets all of them. Yes, they do love the yellow wallpaper. 
and a, a lot of them you know are just you know by the end of that class they're wigging out and uh, the novel that I teach at the at the end of class is maybe a little bit um, is 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 I think an atypical choice. Um, I end that class with the Hound of the Baskervilles, and so you can see why why my choice of more gothic stories early on um, in, ends up uh, I think paying off with m better readers for um, the Conan Doyle novel, um, but. I, you know, I, as as frustrating as it is sometimes, um, I I I find I find myself feeling like like I really really need to pour myself into it. It's like it's like evangelism for my major. <laughs> so, Nathan, have you a better way? I, I I want to let finish by letting you overturn the tables of the anthology changers. Um, you've made it clear in pre-show discussion that you shun the herd and you go your own way when it comes to first-year comp readings. So what's your approach, and why would you commend that to others? Well, first of all, on the course audit level, uh, Emmanuel is a little bit different from what you guys are describing because every uh, four-year, actually every two-year graduate as well as Emmanuel has to take a minimum of three English courses instead of two. Uh, so that frees us up to really dedicate English 101 to just rhetoric uh, and English 102 to research and rhetoric. And then at the 200 level as sophomores, uh, they can take one of four courses uh, that are intercontinental literature, but they are divided by time period. So they can take an ancient medieval class. They can take a Renaissance and Enlightenment class. They can take a 19th century class or they can take a 20 and 21st century class uh and what that frees us up to do as i said was to is to uh really take those writing classes and make them about writing now that said i know that some of my colleagues do uh go back to you know kind of the standards i know a lot of them teach o'connor stories some of them bring novels in there what i tend to do in those writing classes is largely uh, environmental teaching, which is to say they read from a rhetoric textbook. And then when they come into class, we don't have seminar discussions like we would in a literature class that I teach. But instead, I have online-based chat exercises or Google Docs or other sorts of things where they are actually generating text and getting instantaneous feedback from me. Uh, so, I mean, you know, th this is one of the reasons, you know, if listeners are familiar with us over the long span that whenever, uh, you know, generally speaking, it's Mark Bauerlein at Emory University uh, publishes some, you know, screed against using laptops in class because if you use it to take your notes in an economics lecture, you won't do as well on the exams. My response is always, well, who uses laptops for that? What I'm using them for is to have students generate text so that I can respond instantaneously. Now, I mean, once I get into the uh, literature classes, and I teach the first two chronological periods here at Emanuel. Uh, my approach, I mean, I do some of the sort of standard one class period text to be sure, but I do a lot more of things that take a week and a half of class, two weeks of class, because I have the freedom to do that. So, I mean, does that structure make sense in the first place, David? Yeah, the, you, it's, is, is, is that what, um... They're, they're, they're always telling me in the professional development workshops about flipping my classroom. Is, is that the thing you're talking about here? Well, that is what I do, yes. I mean, you know, as far as that goes, I mean, in that literature class, one of the things that I started doing a few years ago, and it's borne a lot of fruit, is that the first 10 or 15 minutes of class, students know when they walk in the room, they're getting into groups of three or four, and they are on a Google Doc answering certain questions, and then they end up doing the lecture for the middle part of class because they are presenting to the rest of the class the questions that they answered. And then the last little run of class, you know, 20, 25, 30 minutes, we're actually in a position where everyone is already warmed up and ready to cook on it. And so I don't have to do the, you know, Bueller, Bueller act, you know, trying to get somebody to talk about the story. So what are the kinds of what are the kinds of readings that you have them responding and answering questions to again? What, 
Uh, and, and, you know, in a literature class, I mean, it, it, it's more, well, I mean, it is a literature class, right? So, I mean, it right. is Gilgamesh, it is Athenian tragedies, it is Dante, it is, you know, Chaucer in the in the second class that I teach. It is, you know, Sunjata, the, the epic of the Mali Empire. Cool. It's, you know, Voltaire, it is Milton, it is Shakespeare. So, I mean, it's it's much more a straightforward literature class. And because they've already got two semesters of rhetoric, I don't have to teach a writing course, even though I, you know, I teach a writing course in every class I teach, I feel like, because I am reintroducing them to the essay genre. I'm teaching them argument structure. I'm teaching them, uh, you know, engaging with sources, engaging with literary texts, engaging with sources about literary texts, all that kind of groovy thing. So, I mean, like I said, I mean, the, the, the real benefit that we have here at Emanuel is, is precisely that we have three semesters to work with instead of two. Now, we do run into the dual enrollment credit that Michael was talking about. A lot of times, uh, students will come in with, you know, college credit, and, you know, listeners can't see me making scare quotes with my fingers, uh, and I end up having to teach them the essay genre in that sophomore level lit class because whatever community college that they went to, and by the way, I love community colleges, and I know there are some very, very good professors at community colleges, just not the ones that these students go to, because they come in with no notion of what an essay is, much less how to build one. Uh, so one of the things that I find interesting in this, I'd like to, I'd like to hear you say a little bit more about this. Um, I'm so used to building the... I don't know the ecology of the individual class around uh, what you you know what the point that you've been making again and again these texts that you can reasonably cover in one class period. Um, do you have uh, do you have an argument for biting off more than they can chew in one day? Well, I mean, it's not necessarily that I do that. I teach longer texts, but I take longer to do it because it is a straight up literature class. Now, in a freshman comp class, like I was saying, I mean, we don't spend much time at all, and in most semesters, not much time at all means zero time, having seminar-style lit class discussions about readings. The readings that I assign them, generally speaking, are going to be from a month or less before the semester started, and what we do is, you know, I will, you know, take a passage of it and highlight it, and then over on a Google Doc, I'm going to have them do rhetorical analysis on it, not for the sake of, you know, agreeing, disagreeing, things like that, but so that I can give them instantaneous feedback on whether or not they're spotting the features that actually constitute rhetorical maneuver. Uh, so, I mean, in, in some sense, it is entirely a class about the art of rhetoric and not at all about the sociology or the cultural studies or the literary text or whatever else that often, you know, becomes the subject matter of a composition course. And, and I owe a lot of this, I'll have to go ahead and say, not only to the structure of Emanuel College, but also to uh, Michelle Balif, who's a uh, rhetoric professor at University of Georgia. She impressed on us in a, uh, you know, a, a rhetoric and composition class that I took from her that, you know, if you're teaching a writing class and if it's listed as a writing class, you should be spending your time writing and revising and doing the things that professional writers do. There will be time and there will be places for them to learn basic feminist theory and to learn, you know, cultural analysis. Uh, in a freshman comp class, she always impressed upon us, uh, they should be learning to write. And I mean, that is the, the chief of the liberal arts, if you believe Richard M. Weaver, and I do. And, you know, generally speaking, in a 14-week semester, I'm wishing by the end I had more time to work with them rather than, you know, lamenting that it was all over in 10 weeks and then I filled the last four. Well, Michael, you persuaded? Uh, well, I mean, whether I'm persuaded or not is irrelevant because I can't redesign the curriculum like that. I, That's it, fair. It, it sounds like a good, it sounds like a good setup. I, I will say I enjoy teaching English comp, the, the rhetoric class, much more than I did 10 years ago when I taught it the way you're describing, Nathan, as cultural studies or whatever. When I do it, we go over a lot of rhetorical technique. We read, I think, four essays on a similar theme. 
So we're spending less than a week in class talking about things they read, and mostly we're talking about technique. And uh, I, 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 I enjoy that more, and I think they enjoy that more. And the only reason we, we read the readings we read is so that they have something to write about. Yeah, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. And when I, when I do that, Michael, I mean, I don't go to the, you know, Martin Luther King and the Jonathan Swift and sort of the, you know, Sherman Alexei, although I think he's kind of fallen from grace lately. Uh, but, you know, I try to pick something, like I said, from the week before classes started, first of all, because it makes it a lot harder to plagiarize. Uh, <laughs> but then also because, you know, it is something that, uh, I can actually point them, you know, as they're working on it. Okay, here's someone responding to it. Look at the moves they're making responding to this article. Yeah, I, I like that uh, That super fresh currency. Um, a, a lot of the more rhetoric-based uh, textbooks that, I, that, that I've used in the past, um, they'll have articles that are more attuned to quote current hot topics but they're like the current hot topics of five years ago or 15 yeah or fit or 15 like like just current enough (laughs) or but but you know things that my my students would look at that um back when i was uh when i would use a textbook like that they would look at those essays and their response would be something on the lines of that was back when i was in you know, elementary school and I wasn't paying attention and now it's irrelevant because of five Supreme court cases or whatever. So yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe it's, if, if you want to keep it fresh, then, you know, it's gotta be fresh, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I'm either teaching stuff from a week ago or I'm teaching platonic dialogues. I don't do a whole lot of 20 year ago stuff. Well, dear listeners, you have heard an awful lot of shop talk. Um, I hope some of it has been uh, interesting, and uh, that well, if you if you if you teach in the field, I don't know, maybe some of it's helpful or familiar or whatever. Um, that though is all we have time for today. What's up for next week? Well, earlier in 2018, the theology world lost one of the pioneers in black theology and arguably the pioneer in black liberation theology, James Cone, uh, for the next three episodes, uh, because David and Michael are very patient human beings. They're going to have conversations with me about James Cone's 1975 book, God of the Oppressed. Excellent. Well, dear listeners, in the meanwhile, if you would like to uh, drop us a line and make comments uh, about this episode and uh, various things we've said in it, you can send those to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can post them on our Facebook wall. Uh, You can post them on the comments of the show notes of this episode when they post on our blog, christianhumanist.org. In the meanwhile, uh, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Ellen Peterson, and I'm David Grubbs on behalf of Michael Farmer and Nathan Gilmore telling you to let your sin be strong and let your faith be stronger.